Father, um, we thank you that uh, though our sins are many, that your mercy is more. Lord, your grace um, overwhelms our sin. Father, our sins are as scarlet. Lord, they stain our souls um, with a stain that cannot be removed by anything other than the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you uh, for the power of his sacrifice, for the mighty Savior that he is, that by what he accomplished on the cross and paying for our sins and rising from the dead, that he is able to wash us clean and make us white as snow, and that with his glorious resurrection, uh, he gave us new life if we have turned from sin and put our trust in him. And Lord, we desire to be less like our old selves and more like our Savior Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work uh, this morning as we sing these hymns and these praise songs and as we pray to you and as we read your word and hear your word preached. May your Holy Spirit use these things to prune us, uh, to make us more and more like your Son and less and less like our old selves, we pray. And if there's any here who don't know Christ savingly, May your Holy Spirit take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. May he grant them repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may see in him a glorious Savior, and that they may see the ugliness of their sin such that they would turn from it and turn to Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I was hoping to finish the whole chapter, but as I started writing the message, I realized there's way too much to explain that that's not going to happen. Um, I wanted to preach the whole chapter so that, you know, we can have Paul's whole argument clearly in our minds. Sometimes when you go too slow, you lose track of what he's talking about. Um, but sometimes I just can't cover that much ground. So I'd encourage you to read chapters 8 through 10, maybe uh, before every Sunday as we go through these three chapters because uh, all three chapters are really tied together and it, it will help you understand a lot, a lot better if you read 8, 9, and 10, the whole thing, just straight through. But we're just looking at chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 this morning. So let me read those three verses. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Last week we saw that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We learned last week that knowledge can be used for selfish purposes, and knowledge can be used for selfless purposes. Pride uses knowledge for selfish purposes, puffing up our heads with it. But love uses knowledge for selfless purposes, seeking to build others up by it. The Corinthians' pride was leading them to use knowledge in a way that was a great harm toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were becoming a threat 
to these weaker believers because of how they were using the knowledge they had. You may have heard before some version of the phrase, you know enough to be dangerous. A person who knows enough to be dangerous is a person who thinks he's mastered a subject when in fact he's nothing but a novice still. Such a person, because he thinks he's a master, he begins to present himself as a master, leading those who lack discernment to trust him when he should not be trusted. At some point during my first year of taking Greek in seminary, our Greek professor told us something along the lines of, now you know enough Greek to be dangerous. We had gotten some of the lingo down, we learned a a couple words, But in reality, we knew very little of all there was to know about the Greek language. But if we got prideful about what we knew, we could easily pass ourselves off as masters to those who didn't know anything about the language. We could throw fancy words around, and if we wanted to, we could easily lead them astray by impressing them with what little knowledge we did know. We knew enough to be dangerous. And that's where the Corinthians are at. They know enough to be dangerous. And what made them dangerous was their failure to know as they ought to know. Their failure to wield their knowledge with love rather than with pride. Now what were the Corinthians doing that was posing such a threat to weaker believers? Well, it's hard to say with 100% certainty because we don't have the first-hand knowledge that Paul had. But as we go through the rest of chapter 8 and as we get into chapter 10, it will become pretty clear that the Corinthians were considering themselves free to continue to dine in idle temples. To new believers who were saved out of paganism and not yet fully established in their faith, to see their older brothers and sisters dine in pagan temples would be incredibly confusing to them, and it would threaten to lure them back to the life of idolatry that they had repented of. For example, we won't get there today, but in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul says, for if someone sees you who have knowledge Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And then when we get to chapter 10, in verses 14 through 22, Paul warns these believers that partaking of the table of demons and partaking of the table of the Lord at at the same time is an impossibility. You cannot worship Christ and worship demons at the same time. You cannot be a Christian and a demon worshiper at the same time. Paul is clearly, throughout the course of these three chapters, trying to steer these believers away from dining in idol temples. Eating meat that had formerly been sacrificed to idols but was not being served in the context of idol worship was fine, like going to the meat market and buying meat 
It, it wasn't a worship service. This was just going to the grocery store. It didn't matter if that meat had been sacrificed to idols before or not because you're not in a context of worship anymore. It's fine to eat that. It's fine to go to someone's house and eat meat that was used in those kinds of services because you were outside of that worship context, but it was wrong to go to the temple and eat this food because you're in the context of worship. And Paul is wanting these believers to understand that. That was not permitted. So Paul moves to help these believers know as they ought to know. He methodically seeks to encourage them to start wielding their knowledge with love instead of pride. And he begins to do this by affirming what they know to be true. And then he seeks to fill out their knowledge with love for God. And we're going to see this in verses 4 through 6. And in these verses, we're going to see the difference between knowledge that is used to promote selfishness and knowledge when it is used to promote selflessness. So first we're going to take a look at knowledge when it's used to promote selfishness. We'll see this in verse 4. After laying down the principle in verses 1 through 3 that knowledge puffs up but love builds up, in verse 4 Paul begins to address the issue that he had mentioned back up in verse 1. In verse 1, he had said, Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. Paul picks that up again after laying down that principle. He picks that up again in verse 4. And he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now, what does Paul mean by that? What is this eating of things sacrificed to idols? Well, Commentator Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, said this, quote, In the Corinth of Paul's time, such meals were still the regular practice, both at state festivals and private celebrations of various kinds. There were three parts to these meals, the preparation, the sacrifice proper, and the feast. The meat of the sacrifices, apparently, was divided into three portions. That burned before the God, that apportioned to the worshipers, and that placed on the table of the God, which was tended by cultic ministrants, but also eaten by the worshipers, unquote. So feasting was often paired with sacrificing to pagan gods, and the food being eaten was taken directly from those sacrifices. The city of Corinth was a city that was filled with pagan influences. Another commentator named David Garland, he notes that uh, the many gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman religions, Greek and Roman theology, uh, mythology, like Zeus and Athena and all of that, they were worshipped in the city of Corinth. There were also Egyptian mystery cults. And being a Roman colony, Corinth, there was prevalent within that city the worship of the office of the emperor. So there's a whole hodgepodge of all sorts of pagan religions all mixed up in this city. And pagan worship was inseparably bound to life in the city of Corinth. 
and that included social life. Paganism ran all through social life. The citizens of the city of Corinth, to them, socializing often centered on eating together, much like us. We fellowship over a meal, and so did they. David Garland, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, shows that it would have been hard for Christians to avoid eating food sacrificed to idols because so much of the city life was centered on that and and tied to that. There were festivals, there were social clubs and associations that people of similar trades and professions would join, and each of these things would involve the eating of these sacrificial meals. Pagan temples would rent out the use of their spaces for people to celebrate weddings, birthdays, funerals, kind of like the fellowship hall, we make that available to people to use. Well, the pagan temples of that day did the same. And so on the menu of those kinds of festivities was often sacrificial meals, meat that had been offered to idols. Christians no doubt had to wrestle with questions of, do I attend this wedding or do I not? Do I go to this birthday party that's at this temple and they're eating this food? Is it okay for me to go to that or not? That's my son screaming downstairs. Just ignore him. (laughs) Since many, if not most, of these believers were saved out of pagan lifestyles, Paul had likely addressed this when he first came to Corinth, when he was there for a year and a half. There's no way he did not address this when their lives were so bound up in it as unbelievers. But with the social pressures to partake of these kinds of meals being so prevalent in that city, it's not a big surprise that Paul would have to address it again. We need to be reminded not to slip back into the world we came out of. In verse 1, Paul had said, we know that we all have knowledge. Here in verse 4, Paul tells us what specific knowledge he was talking about. He says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. That's the specific knowledge that the Corinthians were using to justify certain of their behaviors behavior that was posing a great danger to weaker believers. They thought that they had a certain amount of freedom or authority to live a certain way based on this truth. Idols are nothing, and there's only one God. They they might have been reasoning this way. Paul, why can't I have a meal at the temple down the road with my friends and family? After all, the idols that the food is sacrificed to are nothing. And we know already there's no God but one. What's the harm in it? It's not going to hurt us. Those gods aren't real. And I know that. I can handle it, Paul. Paul begins by affirming the truth that they know. Corinthians are right about a couple of things. An idol, or rather the pagan god that the idol represented, is nothing. Though there are idols of Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite, Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite are not real. They don't exist. 
The pagan god or goddess does not exist. That idol's nothing. The believers are right about that. They're also right about the fact that there is no God but one. There's only one creator. Those idols were made with human hands. They can't speak. They don't breathe. They can't talk. They can't hear. On the other hand, the one true God is eternal. He is life itself, and he's the source of all life. He upholds all things by his powerful word. The one God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, everywhere present. That is what these believers know. And Paul says, you're right, that's true. He agrees with them. However, they are taking that truth, they are taking that knowledge, and they're applying it in totally inappropriate and illegitimate ways. And there's a lesson there for us. We have to be careful about something when we're learning from the Scriptures. We need to be careful that what we learn from the Scriptures does not become trivia that's locked up in our brains. We shouldn't read the Scriptures or read books teaching on the Scriptures or listen to preachers teaching us the Scriptures as if we're preparing to be a contestant on a theological version of the game show Jeopardy. We should always come to the Scriptures seeking for the Holy Spirit to transform us through His Word. We also should never come to the Scriptures in order to try and ferret out of its pages some excuse or justification for me to keep engaging in the selfish behavior that I want to keep engaging in. We can turn this book into my, my excuse book. Let me rip out this verse to tell you why I can keep doing what I'm doing. doesn't matter who it hurts. I can keep doing this because this verse says this. Instead, we should come to the Scriptures with an attitude of humble surrender, willing to go wherever the Word of God is telling us to go. The Corinthians had taken this truth that an idol is nothing and that there's only one God, and they were using that truth to justify selfish behavior instead of looking at that truth and asking themselves, how is that truth meant to change my life? How is that truth meant to grow my love for God? How is this truth meant to equip me to serve my brothers and sisters more faithfully? How is this truth to be used by me to reach the lost for Christ? Don't forget that the devil used Scripture to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. When we rip Scripture, when we rip scriptural truth out of the context of its Christ-exalting purpose, we are imitating Satan more than we're imitating Christ. If you're creative enough, you can justify almost any sin by isolating the factual content that is found in this book from the life-transforming power that this book has. You just come to it, how can I excuse this behavior? And you block out the thoughts, how is this meant to change me? How is this meant to conform me to Christ? That's what these believers were doing with this truth. It was true, but they were using it wrongly. So that's knowledge. 
used in a way to promote your own selfishness. That brings us to verses 5 and 6 where we find knowledge used a different way. Knowledge used to promote selflessness. In verses 5 and 6, Paul begins to hint at the fact that they were misapplying the truth that he stated in verse 4. Look at what he says in verse 5. Paul says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Let me stop right there. What is Paul saying there? He just agreed in verse 4 that idols are nothing, but here in verse 5 he seems to be saying idols are something. Well, idols are nothing in the sense that the God the idol is supposed to represent isn't real, doesn't exist. But that does not mean that there's not anything at all behind that idol. We'll see in chapter 10, as I already referred to, that there are demonic forces behind that idol, deceiving people into believing that this God is real when in fact that God is not real so that they'll not believe in the one true God. And these demons, these demons are called gods, lowercase g, in Scripture. For example, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 20. Um, here's a law that uh, is part of the Mosaic law given to Israel to obey. Verse 20 says, He who sacrifices to any god, and it's literally, he who sacrifices to the gods, other than to the Lord alone, shall be utterly destroyed. Then go with me. These verses are kind of going to build on one another. Um, so turn with me to Leviticus 17. And I'll have a couple more to go to after that. Leviticus 17 and verse 7, the first six verses, uh, the Lord is walking them through how they need to only sacrifice where God has prescribed them to sacrifice. And in verse 7, he says, They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. So they're, they're sacrificing to idols, but we learn here these are goat demons. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. You ask me what's a goat demon, I don't know, I didn't get that far. But we'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17. Chapter 10, verse 17. We're told there, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. 
God's not being compared to nothing there. He's being compared to something, and he's the God of these little gods, the Lord over these little lords. Next, and it will become most clear here, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 to 17. I'll actually back up. I'll start in verse 15. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods With abominations, they provoked him to anger. And then look at verse 17. There's there's three parallel phrases, all referring to the same entity. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. These demons are also called gods, lowercase g, little gods. You see, behind every idol claiming to represent a pagan big G God, there's actually a creature called a demon, a little G God. Paul calls them a so-called God, God in name only, pretending to be a divine being in order to ensnare unbelievers. And Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5 that there are many of those There are plenty of those. So you see, Paul is already seeming to begin recalibrating the Corinthians' knowledge here. He's already showing them that though the pagan god that the idol represents is nothing, that doesn't mean that there's not something else at work behind those idols. So yes, idols are nothing, but that's not all there is to say about it. Then we come to verse 6. Even if it is the case that there are many so-called gods and lords, yet, verse 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Here, Paul is still agreeing with the Corinthians, affirming the knowledge that they have, but at the same time, he seems to be trying to elevate their knowledge to a level that takes love for God and others into account. He doesn't just say there's one God. He says what he says in verse 6. We saw last week that knowledge without love is really ignorance. Knowledge that does not have the practical effect of increasing your love for God or increasing your love for others or in transforming your life, that's not true knowledge. Here in verse 6, Paul states the truth that there is only one God, but he says it in a way that makes clear that this truth is meant to be a life-transforming truth. If your life is not changed as a result of knowing this truth, then you don't know as you ought to know. Paul says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, 
and we exist for him. The Corinthians are right. There is one God, but Paul seeks to take them farther. This one God is the Father, the source of all things. And he says, we, the Corinthians, Paul, you and me here today, we exist for him. Each one of us owes our existence to God the Father. He is the great fount of all life. And there is a reason he created us. We're not accidents. There's a reason he made us. He did not create us so that we could spend our lives living for ourselves, pursuing our goals, chasing after our own glory, spending the resources he gave us on benefiting ourselves. Paul says we are for him. The purpose of our lives begins and ends with him. We exist to bring him glory. The Corinthians are using their knowledge that there's one God in order to defend their perceived rights to continue dining in pagan temples. And they're absolutely clueless to the fact that their exercise of that so-called liberty is actually threatening the salvation of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, in verse 6, Paul is showing us that the truth that there is one God should lead us to a far different conclusion with far different behavior. The knowledge that there is one God should lead us to the conclusion that there is only one being in the universe who can lay claim to all that I am and all that I do. And that being is not myself. That being is God the Father. That consideration seems to have not even begun to enter the minds of these believers when it comes to this subject that Paul is talking to them about. All they're thinking about is what benefits themselves, not what brings glory to God, not what serves the body of Christ. How about you and me? It's doubtful that any of us has had to do a lot of hand-wringing lately over someone inviting us to the temple of Zeus. But we can be invited to a Catholic mass or an Islamic mosque or a Buddhist temple or a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness church or a certain yoga center that does practice transcendental meditation or even a certain martial arts dojo that does incorporate the religious beliefs of the culture from which that martial art arose. And there are other more invisible idols out there claiming our devotion, getting in the way of our worship of the one true God, getting in the way of our service to others. And we say to ourselves, well, that thing's not really a God. It won't hurt me because there's only one true God. So there's no harm in me participating in this activity. But to you and I who say that, Paul says, it's not about you. You are not the only consideration that goes into this decision. This affects your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're not even thinking about that. It's curious how rarely the knowledge 
that there is one God actually causes us to deny ourselves for the sake of that one true God that we claim to know. There is something devilish in how we use that knowledge to push the boundaries on how much I can get away with instead of using that knowledge to further secure my devotion to the Lord and to my brothers and sisters. We too quickly overlook the fact that there's something demonic behind that idol, whatever it might be. And even if you don't deny your faith in the one true God in the course of participating in that activity, that demon will be well content with taking up your time, taking up your resources, and making you a stumbling block to another believer. Paul goes on by saying that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. What Paul says here is utterly blasphemous if Jesus Christ is anything less than the one true eternal almighty God. In both halves of this verse, there's one God, there's one Lord. Paul is drawing on the famous passage of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Let's look at that together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. That verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now the word Lord there is not the word for Lord. The all capital letters in that word tells you that the Hebrew word here is actually the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The translators have just carried on the ancient tradition of not writing or speaking the name Yahweh, but they let us know that that's the name that's there by writing Lord in all capital letters. However, the Septuagint, please try to follow me here, it'll pay off in a little bit. The Septuagint, that is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that has something different in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Septuagint is what is often quoted by the New Testament writers. It was the Bible that believers in the New Testament time period were familiar with. Let me tell you in English what the Septuagint says in Deuteronomy 6.4. That says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. Lord. The word for Lord in the Septuagint is the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. And in fact, whenever the name Yahweh occurs in the Old Testament, the Septuagint usually translates that as kurios, Lord. That's why every time you see in the New Testament a New Testament writer quote the Old Testament, anytime the name of God comes up, it's always translated, it's always quoted as Lord because they're quoting from the Septuagint. That's why Yahweh doesn't show up in the New Testament because they're quoting from 
the Septuagint. Now, what's the point? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul takes Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 from the Septuagint, and he applies that verse that says, the Lord our God is one Lord. He applies that verse to both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to our minds, you can't apply that verse to more than one person. But Paul says, no, you can't. How so? Well, Paul, he says in this verse in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that there is one God, which Deuteronomy also says, but he also says that there is one Lord, which Deuteronomy also says. But Deuteronomy 6.4 says that that one Lord is God, while Paul says that that one Lord is Jesus Christ. How can Paul talk like that without contradicting himself or being a blasphemer? Well, Paul is able to speak this way because not only is the Father the one Lord God, but Jesus Christ is also the one Lord God. How can that be? Well, it's that way because the God of the Bible, though he is one God, yet he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4 is telling us that God is one being. The Lord our God is one Lord. 1 Corinthians 8.3 is showing us that that one being who is both God and Lord, that one being is at the same time at least two persons, Father and the only begotten Son of the Father who took on flesh the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that the one Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one by whom are all things. The Father, as the one God, is the creative source of all things, and Jesus Christ, as the one Lord, who is also God, is the agent of creation, the one who created and overrules all things. Paul here is saying the same thing that the Apostle John said in John chapter 1. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And who is the Word of God? Jesus. So, Back to 1 Corinthians 8. Not only do we owe our existence to God the Father, but we also owe our existence to Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we as believers owe our salvation. We owe our redemption to Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 6 how Paul says, One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul says we he doesn't say me, and he doesn't say you alone. He says we. 
Jesus has saved not only me, he's saved not only you yourself, Jesus has saved many brothers and sisters along with you and me. And the implications of that will come out later in this chapter. Salvation is not just about me. The freedoms and the rights that I have because of the salvation of Jesus Christ are not just for me or about me. The Christian is not a lord unto himself. The Christian is a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is your Lord. And the knowledge and the rights that Jesus gives to us in his saving of us are not things that we get to do with however we want to use them. They came to us through Jesus Christ. The knowledge and the rights that he has given us are resources that he has stewarded to us so that we may use them to bring him glory and to serve others, not serve ourselves. The last passage I'm going to read is one that states that quite plainly, and that's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He purchased us for himself. Jesus did not save us so that we could serve ourselves. He saved us so that we could serve him and serve his body, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how are you and I using our knowledge of our one God and our one Lord? Are we using our freedom in Christ to serve our brothers and sisters sacrificially? Or are we using our freedom in Christ to serve ourselves? May the Lord help us never to forget that we exist for God the Father and we exist through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.